Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, the year was 1949, and a young evangelist named Billy Graham was holding a series of crusades at the Los Angeles Coliseum. William Randolph Hearst, who owned a whole chain of newspapers, decided that he was going to pump up those crusades, making them front-page news in newspapers all across the country. Well, the crusade that was already going well began to take off even more, and it became the buzz all across the United States. About this time, there was a guy named Mickey Cohen who had been born in Brooklyn to Jewish parents from Eastern Europe. And Mickey had a brief boxing career before he turned to a life of crime. He worked for a short period in Chicago for Al Capone, where he became a pretty, pretty uh, trusted agent within the mob. And then he came out to, to work for a guy named Bugsy Siegel in Los Angeles. Bugsy, as you may know, was very instrumental in all the building of the casinos and stuff in Las Vegas. And so Mickey became a very important part of the, the mob in Los Angeles. One of his top lieutenants, a guy by the name of Jim Voss, went to a Graham crusade and was touched deeply and decided to step over the line and become a follower of Jesus Christ. And that created a bit of conflict in Jim's life. And he went to Mickey and he said, you know, man, I got to get out of this. I've got to walk away from this. And, and Cohen did something that was rather unusual. He let Jim go, and he put an order of protection around Jim. He let him retire, something that you don't normally do from the mob. Now, you don't normally retire, but Jim did, and, 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 and Mickey gave him his blessing as he went along. And Mickey, though, was fascinated by the buzz that was being created by this series of evangelistic events. And he heard Voss's conversations and Voss's comments. And so Mickey decided that he wanted to go and actually see one of the Billy Graham meetings. But he didn't want the press around. He didn't want a lot of people to know. So they made arrangements to slip him in backstage. He did actually get to meet Billy Graham. And he made a comment to Billy about, well, you know that Christian thingy that you guys do before you eat? You know, referring to the, referring to the meal, the prayer. But he was fascinated and he, he paid some attention. Well, a couple of years later, the IRS caught up with Mickey. That's the only thing they could get him for, as, a lot, as with a lot of these mobsters. They got him for tax evasion because it was obvious that his lifestyle was way beyond the income that he was reporting, and he ended up doing four years in prison. And when he came out, he began to touch base with some of his old friends, his old buddies. And during this time, Jim Voss and a guy by the name of Ed Orr had some conversations with Mickey. And Mickey listened to the gospel and said, yeah, I want some of that. And so they began meeting with Mickey and doing Bible studies, but at the same time, Mickey started moving closer and closer back with his old friends on the other side. And he started going into those environments. And finally, there came a time when a guy named Jones, who was coordinating Mickey's discipleship, sat Mickey down and said, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're supposed to be moving away from those things, not back towards them. Well, Mickey got pretty ticked off at Jones, and he looked at him and said, Jonesy, you never told me, you never told me that I would have to give up my career. You never told me I'd have to give up my friends. 
there's Christian athletes, there's Christian businessmen. Why can't there be Christian gangsters? <laughs> if I have to give all that up for Christianity, then count me out. Now, I tell that story because Mickey is such a perfect illustration of the difference between following Jesus and good intentions. Somehow, over time, in many of our circles, we've got the idea that if you have a good intention, that the good intention is the same thing as reality. Some of us have had gym memberships to prove it, right? Okay? Unfortunately, some people get the idea that, that what makes someone a, a follower of Jesus is a, is a nod to God at some point. That if there's anywhere in the past where we've said a certain prayer or a well-intentioned prayer at camp or, um, or when we were actually called to come forward in a church service or something, that it's kind of like the sense of signing up for the gym, you know, and giving your credit card and then they got you and you're a member of that gym for the rest of your life. It's, try ever try to get out of one of those things, you'll know what I'm talking about. But it's like taking that step with the best of intentions is the same thing as going to the gym or the same thing as following Jesus, and it's not. There's a difference between a good intention and actually following. Now, I'm saying very clearly that the good intentions don't necessarily mean that the reality takes place, but please hear me. You don't have to clean up your act before coming to Jesus. Jesus has his arms out. He says, I've got room even for Christian gangsters, but they don't stay Christian gangsters. He says, come as you are, but for God's sake, don't stay that way. And that's the Christian message. Jesus is in no way asking you to clean up your act beforehand, to get rid of this, to get rid of that, in order to get good enough. Because no matter what you or I ever did, we could never get good enough to deserve God's grace. He's saying, absolutely come as you are. But then he says, once you join the gym, we're going to get you in shape. Because once you start to follow, I'm actually going to expect you to follow. Well, before we jump into our continuation in 1 Peter, I want you to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, something that Paul wrote there to the church at Corinth. And you see that no failure, no sin is beyond the power of the cross. Paul writes this, he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that could be a pretty bummed out verse, couldn't it? But read the next verse, and this is the thing we need to understand. And that is what some of you, what? Were. That is what some of you were. That's the key word, were, the past. You see, that's the kind of people that Jesus is calling. He's saying, Mickey, you come on in. But then he says this, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Good intentions are not reality. But there's no past. There's no history that's beyond the call of Jesus Christ. And it's where these two things meet, come as you are, but for God's sake, don't stay that way, that Christian life begins. Today we're looking at what I'm simply calling following Jesus 101, the very core basics, and it's, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue our slower than a snail pace through this letter. 
I want to read the text first, and and then I want to come back and and talk about what it means to follow Jesus. Four things we can pull out of this text, out of this passage. So let's go to verse 1. Peter says this, Therefore, and he's pointing back to chapter 3 and and verse 18, where it talks about Christ suffering once for all for our sins. And that's what we remembered this week when we we looked at Good Friday and and the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross with the subsequent resurrection from the grave as we celebrated this morning. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And he says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Why? Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. You notice the, 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 the pedigree of Christians once again. Now they, and these are the people that he's talking about, the people that you used to hang with. Now they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of, of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit." Now, I want to take a little sidebar here up front, and, and because it's not part of the, the rest of the message, but uh, what is this about verse 6, where it says the gospel is being preached to those who are now dead? Well, you read that verse by itself, and, you, and some people might wonder, does, does that mean that Jesus is going to give people who are dead a second chance? Well, the Bible says clearly in Hebrews 9:27 that just as man is destined to die once, after that he or she will face judgment. There are no second chances after death. If you wanted to, you could circle that word was there in verse 6. And he's not saying the gospel is being preached to those who are dead. He's saying that they heard the gospel before they died. He's speaking to Christians here. His letter's going out to Christians who are scattered, who are under persecution. And some of their brothers, some of their sisters have been martyred for their faith. and, And there's others who have died of natural causes. And he says this is the reason that despite their past history of sin, the good news was preached to them so that they might, even though they would die, as is the lot of every human being, they might be resurrected to righteousness when Christ returns. So he's simply talking about people who were sinners just like those guys and and just like you and me, who have heard the gospel, who have accepted God's offer of salvation and are now dead but have the reward of eternity. Now with that said, here's what I want to do with the balance of our time. I want to flesh out those first verses here in chapter 4. I want to flesh out and look at the application of these things, these things that we can put into into use in our lives here in the 21st century. And the first thing that we note about following Jesus is he he says that there's a new attitude towards suffering. There's a new attitude towards suffering. Look back at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, the same attitude that Jesus had, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now that in modern day English is kind of a a cryptic way of saying a a very simple truth. That it is better to suffer than to sin. It is better to suffer than to sin. And we are to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had who understood that. What was Jesus' attitude towards suffering? 
We can write Jesus' attitude towards suffering very simply. He chose suffering over sin. When given the choice, when given the option, in his humanity, he chose suffering over disobedience to the Father. He chose to obey the Father. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says simply this about Jesus, that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. The end reward. He had his eyes on the end reward, not on focusing on the pain, the suffering that was happening just then. Believe me, if you look around, his reward is you and me. It doesn't say that he loved the cross. It doesn't say that he looked forward to the cross. It doesn't say that it was a breeze and, and it was easy. He endured it. Why? Because he knew what would be the end result. And so what Peter is, is telling us is the same way in our human life. As you grow into maturity as a man or a woman, you begin to understand that there's a connection between behavior and consequences. And as we mature, we, we understand, we begin to understand that sometimes the return comes later. All of the gratification isn't immediate. And you can see that, you know, the child a child lives in the, the right now zone. It's hard for a child to think beyond the five or 10 minutes that, that they're in at the present time. It's the child that cannot put something off for a future reward. Back in 1972, there's a study done by a, a professor named Walter Mitchell up at, uh, up at Stanford. And it was a study of delayed gratification. And in this study, children were offered a small reward, sometimes marshmallows, sometimes candy or other things. They were offered a small reward immediately, or they told them if they waited a period of time, they would get two rewards. And Mitchell found an unexpected correlation between the results of this marshmallow experiment and the success of children many years later. The first follow-up study was done 16 years later in 1988, and it showed that preschool children who delayed gratification longer in their self-imposed delay paradigm were described more than 10 years later by their parents as adolescents who were significantly more well-adjusted and competent. A second follow-up study was done in 1990, and it showed the ability to delay gratification also correlated with higher SAT scores. And in 2011, they did brain imaging studies of a sample of the original Stanford participants when they reached midlife, and it showed key differences between those with high delay times and those with low delay times in two areas when they were trying to control their responses to alluring temptations. And Peter, he's saying that it's true in the spiritual realm as well. When we arm ourselves with the attitude of Jesus, we see the big picture. We see that there are going to be situations and, and times in our life where we have to choose between doing the right thing and getting the reward later or doing whatever we want and having the pain later or losing reward later. Jesus illustrated this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before he went to the cross, he prays to the Father three different times. He says, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me. It shows how much he, he did not want in his flesh to go to the, to the cross. He did not want to go there. But at the end of the day, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He chose obedience, even though it meant suffering. 
So Peter's telling us to look at our Lord and take upon ourselves this same attitude. And let's be honest, when he says whoever suffers is done with sin, the truth of the matter is that, that most of the sin that we do in our life, and by sin I mean when, when we know something is wrong and we do it anyway, or when we know that something is we should do it and we don't do it, most of the time we do this in order to avoid pain. Because I would say that even when we, when we do it in order to get pleasure, pleasure is the opposite of pain, and that's why we do it. And the weird thing is once we go through some suffering, as we mature with the Lord, and we come out on the other side, we go, wow, that wasn't that bad. In the military, we have this wonderful thing called boot camp. And there's other sources of training that people go through, and there's a lot of reasons that they do that. But one of the reasons you go through these things is to help you understand what you can handle and how much you can take. Because after we pass through certain fires, if you will, in our life, we're no longer afraid. It gives us a resilience. It gives us an ability to stand up to those things that might have scared us. Once we lose our fear of suffering, sin loses its power over us. I'll say it again. Once we lose our fear of suffering, sin loses its power over us. You see, the wisdom, wisdom begins with the fear, the respect of the Lord. Father does know best. Folly begins with the fear of loneliness. If you fear being lonely, you'll make stupid decisions. The fear of financial loss or the, the fear of not maximizing financial things, you'll make stupid decisions. The fear of a lack of fulfillment, that'll cause you to make stupid decisions. The fear of emotional pain will cause you to make stupid decisions. And as we walk with God, as we obey, as we receive the reward, we realize that that's different. You don't need to raise your hands, but think about it. How many of you women here have had multiple children? Not, not, single, not just one child, but multiple children through natural childbirth, not a, not a C-section. I'm sure there'll be a, quite a few ha hands raised here. Well, the question I would ask those ladies is, why did you do it twice? <laughs> why did you do it twice? I can tell you I believe why. It's because of the joy set before you. The same reason Jesus went to the cross, for the joy set before you. Now, I, I think the person that said if men had babies, every family would only have one kid, I think that person got it. They understood. You see, after the first child, the fear is gone. It's like, or, or, or you just kind of forget what, what you went through. And then the next time, you know, you may ask your husband, why would you let me go through this twice? Blame it on the husband. We husbands have broad shoulders. We can take it. It's like, oh, no, I've been down this road before. I know the joy that is going to come from that little darling that I just gave birth to. Now, the second thing he says is found here in uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 2. He says, when we arm ourselves that way, what happens? As a result, they do not live the rest of their lives for evil desires, but rather for the will of God. So the second thing here is a new north star, God's will. The most basic means of, of navigation at sea is using Polaris, the north star. When we start our journey with Jesus, we end up with a brand new North Star, and that is the will of God, not following Walt's will, following God's will. I want you to write this profound thought down. Followers, follow. Simple as that. Followers follow. They have a new North Star. What do you want me to do, Lord? And the Bible actually strangely encourages us to check out whether or not we pass the follow test. 
Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 with me, verse 5. The Apostle Paul, again, is writing to the church at Corinth to a bunch of Christians there, and, and he tells them this, something very few people, I think, today would say. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Now, let me explain something. Remember earlier I was talking about the, the nod to God, the good intentions and all those things? Well, that's kind of the way it is in, in many Christian circles. We find our assurance that we're really following God, not by the evidence of our lives, but by something that happened in the past, and in some cases, the far, far, far distant past. By the membership we bought, so to say. By the prayer we prayed. By the good intention that we had. So he's writing to these Corinthians, and he says, you know what? You guys need to take a hard look in the mirror and decide whether or not you really passed the follow test. Now, today, if someone comes up and says, man, I'm, I'm worried whether I'm a Christian or not, most of us would probably say, well, did you ever pray this prayer, or did you ever walk forward at camp or in church or the sawdust trail under the tent? Did you ever do these things? And, oh, yeah, I did. Well, then don't worry. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, examine yourself. Look at your life. See if you pass the test of followership. Now, you may say, what test is he, is, he, is he talking about? Well, in 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle John tells us this. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. If you, this kind of echoes Jesus saying, if you love me, you'll follow my commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you don't like that, Take it up with God. He had John write those words. I, those aren't my words. That's, those are God's words. Now, I want you to, to listen carefully here because one of the dangers of preaching is this. What you mean to say, what you actually say, and what people hear. They don't always come out the same thing. I'm not saying that you have to look in the mirror and say, am I a Navy SEAL Christian? Am I, am I perfect? It's simply saying, look in the mirror and say, am I following? Am I following? Is the direction of my life, is the, is the consistency of my life following God? Is there any evidence that the north star of your life is the will of God? Now understand this about Jesus followers. There are people who are way out in the front, and you know, sometimes we look up to them. Then there are those in the middle, and there are some of us in the back, and we're so far in the back that we take two steps forward and we go one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes we take three steps and we see a squirrel and follow the spiritual squirrel before we get back on track. When I'm talking about following, I'm not talking about having your act all perfectly together. I'm talking about is there evidence that you're even in the line following Jesus? Because I run across so many people today, all they have is that membership card. Yeah, I, I, I belong to the gym. Really? How many times have you been? You know, they, they, they've given their nod to God. They, they have the, the good intentions. They're, they're Mickey Cohens. They're Christian gangsters. And I want you to understand, those of, of you who are struggling, that it's okay to struggle with sin because the key word here is struggle. If you're struggling with sin, it means you're trying to follow. You're in real danger, though, when you start to defend your sin. And you're absolutely dead meat when you set up camp in your sin. But one of the marks of following Jesus is you take that new star, that new north star, and there's a cool truth about God's will. No matter how hard God's will might seem today, it's far harder to be outside of God's will. There is a north star. Thirdly, 
It's a new lifestyle. No longer living for the flesh. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Well, what does it mean to, to live in the flesh? Now, that's kind of a, a churchy phrase, isn't it? But it simply means that you live being guided by your natural impulses. That's what it means. When I live for the flesh, I live by impulse. And again, back to little children. Let me ask, did any of you here have to teach your children how to sin? Anybody? Anybody have to teach your child how to be self-centered? No. No, did you ever have to call up the state and say, hey, my, my, my son or daughter is sin delayed. Do you have a program for that? You know, something we can use to help them? Of course not. Because when we all start out, it's all about us. It's about us. It's about me. The child believes I'm the center of the universe. It's all about me. It's all about what I want right now. And maturing as, as human beings is about moving away from that. And maturing spiritually is about moving away from that. But there's a weird thing happening in our culture, and it's part of this whole debate that's going on in, in American culture about sexuality. And I'm not just talking about gay issues here. I'm talking about heterosexual activity as well. And it pretty much goes like this, that a drive equals a right to exercise that drive. That's what's behind it. Behind everything else is this, well, you know, I've got this drive, and so it's my right. And they'll even say, we'll say, my God-given right to exercise that drive. You don't understand how I'm driven sexually, and my, my husband or my wife doesn't meet those needs, so therefore it's okay for me to act out on those needs. And it doesn't really matter that my sexual drives are, are oriented towards something that Scripture says not to do. I have a right to fulfill every drive that I have. And we look at that, and we always look at someone else's drives and a struggle that's different from our own struggle. We say, shame, shame, shame. And we never look in the mirror to realize how much we could be give, driven by that drive given a different circumstance. Well, I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I can't tell you how many times I've had a husband or a wife or, or together come into my office and they say, well, I'm done with this marriage because I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. And I say, really? Since when did fulfillment or happiness be the measure of the right thing to do? And I hate to say, but so many times I've warned people that, you know, they think divorce is the easy way out, and then another divorce happens, and another divorce happens, until finally they give up on marriage altogether after the fourth or fifth time. And I've seen this happen over and over again with things. They say, you don't understand how unfulfilled I am. Well, thankfully I don't, but I've got own areas of my life where everything in me wants to go over here, but Jesus says go over there. And what I do is I have to follow the way that Jesus says. I don't live for my impulses. It's amazing how our world today impacts those of us even who are following Jesus, even for a long time. It's amazing how many people think that living like an animal is living fully human. That the freer I am to do whatever it is I want, that, that whatever it is I feel, then the freer I am. That my business is none of your business. The more I can just live in my little autonomous private life, the more I'm just, well, it's all about me. And then the more fully human I am, living by my drives and my impulses. Folks, the coyotes in the desert do that. Wild animals do that. That's not fully human. That's actually dehuman. It's a lie from Satan that that's human. It's, un, it's as, un, as unhuman as we can get. But what have we done? We've cast off restraint. We've excused living by impulse. 
And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, you're a son. You're a daughter of the king. And when you step over that line and start following me, I adopt you into my family. I forgive your sin. I, I adopt you into, into, into the father's family. I'm starting to change you from the inside out so that you can be truly human the way that God wanted you to be, God's original design. And part of that is that you're no longer afraid of suffering. Part of that is that you've got a new North Star. And part of that is that now you have some control. You don't live by impulse, by pure fleshly desires, but by the will of God. And then he says, number four, there's going to be a new response when you do this. A new response. And what is that new response? That new response is that some people won't understand us. There's going to be people in your life that won't understand what you're doing. He says, I want you to understand from the get-go. And over and over again, Peter's writing to these scattered and, and persecuted Christians that we've seen from the very beginning of this book that we've been studying. And a few verses later, in another week or so, he's going to say, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes your way. It's going to be coming. And over and over, he says, you know what? This world's not going to understand you. They're not going to understand what you've done to get in that line to follow Jesus. They're not going to fully understand it when you begin to change. In chapter 4, verses uh, 4 and 5, they're going to be surprised that you, that you don't join them in their wickedness and their, their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on, abuse on you. But you're going to have to give an account to him who is, who is ready to judge the living and dead, and they are too. And then we already talked about verse 6, but he says, don't be surprised, but can we be real? We Christians are almost always surprised when the world doesn't understand us, aren't we? We're absolutely shocked if it, if it persecutes us. In fact, we often go, well, well, I just can't believe what happened. Because of my faith, something bad happened here. That person doesn't want to hang out with me anymore. That person doesn't like me. How in the world can that happen? It's like, um, read the book. That's normal. But over and over again, we have to be reminded of it. And by the way, you're not a bad person if you forget that. And, you know, I'm not a bad person if I forget because that's our human nature. We want people to like us. We want people to, to desire to be with us. And that's why over and over and over again in Scripture, it tells us don't be surprised when this happened. Remember, it happened to Jesus as well, especially by the religious folk. Again, those who don't understand and those who even may mock you or, or may heap abuse upon you, I want you to understand they're not the enemy. Our goal is never to wipe them out. Our goal is always to win them over, just like Jesus did you and me. And if you step back and if you think for a moment, you'll understand why. Because, you know, when, when you're in the darkness, when you're doing something that you want to be anonymous in, in the dark, and somebody comes along and shines on a light, what do you, you say, hey, get out of here. Get out of here. Let me just keep on doing what I'm doing. It's none of your, none of your business. So don't be surprised when they act like that. Just keep doing what God has called you to do, and they'll be astonished. Yes, they may be antagonistic, but they'll understand, and they'll understand that they're accountable. So you just keep doing the right thing. Keep on following God. Now, there's been a concern among people in the professional Christian ministry of the last 10 or 15 years, and it comes out of some surveys that have been done. One of our Bible conference speakers last year spoke about it a little bit, and he wasn't the first person to discover this. It's been going on. I've been reading about it for 10 12 years myself, and it's called The Rise of the Nuns. Now, we're not talking about ladies in habits, you know, like Flying Nun, Sally Field. You know, we're talking about people who say, I'm none of those things. 
And this is people that, who, who identify when you ask about uh, religiously what they identify. They, they, they're, they're not Christian. They're not Buddhist. They're not Baptist. They're not Jewish. They're not Muslim. And so they've been labeled as nuns. I'm none of those things. And the number of those people have skyrocketed over the last 20 years in the United States. And so for some people in professional ministry, there's books, there's articles, there's magazines, and saying, oh no, what are we going to do about the rise of the nuns? Because the, nun, the number of self-identified Christians used to be real high. Almost all the nuns are former people that said, I'm a Christian. And as I read these articles asking about this and stem the tide, I'm not along in that camp there. I look at the rise in people who say none, and I go, hallelujah, Jesus. Why? Because they're finally admitting the truth. You know, I can't tell you how many times I, I would, I never would ask a sailor or a marine, I never would say, okay, well, well what is your denomination? I'd say, tell me about your faith background, because that requires a different way of answering that question. Because if I said, well, what's, what's, you know, what denomination? I'd tell you, you know, nine times out of ten, Seaman Sally or Fireman Timmy are going to sit there and say, well, in their mind, the calculus is going, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Hindu, I'm not, you say, I'm not Catholic, I'm, I'm not, 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 not Lutheran, oh, I'm Baptist. And when I go to talk to them, guess what? They've never been in a Baptist church in their life. They just think because they were born in America, they must be a Christian because they weren't born in a Muslim country or in a Hindu country, in a Buddhist country. And Baptists are kind of so scattered and varied and always arguing with each other, all that kind of stuff. Then they say, hey, I'm, I'm a Baptist. But really, they're none. They were none of those. In 1990, a Gallup poll showed that 33% of Americans claimed to be born again. 73% that year claimed to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm like, what's the difference between being born again and having a relationship with Jesus Christ? I thought they were the same thing. You know, maybe they had a bumper sticker on their car, or maybe they had a, a membership that they bought one day. And in the same year, 1990, in a Roper poll, they compared behavior of self-identified Christians and the rest of the world, and they found little difference in their behavior before and after conversion with regard to the use of illegal drugs, of drinking and driving, and adultery. Why? Because they plastered a fish on the back of their truck. Because we thought that we could be Christian gangsters, because we thought that we could follow without really following. Now, what I love about the rise of the nun is that when someone realizes that they're nothing, I believe it gives us a better opportunity to talk to them because they're being honest. It gives a better opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. When they think that they have a gym membership and that it's doing them well, but it's not, there's nowhere to go. They're not going to get healthy. Following Jesus 101. Follow. It's as simple as that. Even though it might take some suffering, even though we might have to follow a new north star, even though we have to not live by impulse, but live by his will, don't worry if people are going to be surprised. Don't even worry if you're the last one in the stinking line as long as you're in the line. Keep on following Jesus. Amen. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.